following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So we're working through this series in Exodus. We're journeying with the Israelites. Uh, we've journeyed with them uh, for a big chunk of the year out of Egypt and through the desert of Sinai, and where we're heading is to Mount Sinai. That's the destination. They don't get to the land of Canaan in Exodus. Where they get to is Mount Sinai. That's the climactic moment, and we're almost there. Next week, we're going to spend the next two weeks at Mount Sinai, so to speak, with the Israelites. But just before they get there, you have this story about Moses and Jethro. The Israelites have been journeying for about three months, by this point, through the desert. They've left Egypt behind. Uh, all they can see is sand, just big desert rocks, sandy valleys. It's long days. It's baking hot sun. They're being sustained by the manna that God's providing for them each day and the water that he provided from the rock. But this is hard going. It's tiring. It's arduous. Some people are lagging behind. It's a pretty tough trick for the Israelites. And then if you can imagine one day, Moses sees some people in the distance coming towards him. And it's his family. His own family are coming to visit him. His father-in-law Jethro, his wife Zipporah, his two sons are coming to be reunited with him. At some point in the story, and we don't quite know where, his family, his wife and his boys, went back to Midian. So they came with him part of the way to Egypt when he left Midian. But at some point in the story, they've gone back. So Moses hasn't had them with him the time that he's been in Egypt. He's been away from them for at least several months, possibly up to a year now. So there's this wonderful reunion. The funny thing is, you don't hear anything about Moses' reunion with his wife and his sons. Like, that must have been really nice. But all the focus goes on his father-in-law, Jethro. Because Jethro, in this story, is the main character. Jethro is the one who the author focuses on because of the experience that Jethro has as he talks with Moses. So Moses and Jethro meet each other, and Moses brings Jethro into the tent, tells him all the things that God has done for Israel, tells him about the confrontations with Pharaoh, tells him about the plagues, tells him about the departure from Egypt and the dramatic rescue at the Red Sea and then the trek through the wilderness and the manna and the water and all of these things. Moses just recounts everything that God has done for Israel to Jethro. And Jethro's response is fantastic. Just look at what Jethro does in response to what Moses says. In verse 9, Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel. Literally, that passage says Jethro rejoiced. His heart was stirred by what Moses said. He rejoiced. And then the next words out of his mouth in verse 10, he said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians. Literally, he says, Bless Yahweh. Bless the Lord. That's a statement of worship. Yahweh is, Jethro is worshiping Yahweh, giving praise to Yahweh. His heart is being turned. His heart is turning to devotion, to worship of the God of Moses and the God of Israel. And he says in verse 11, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods. Now some people say, well, all that Jethro is really doing here is saying that God is at the top of the pile of a whole lot of gods. 
that he's greater than these other gods that he's been worshipping. But this kind of language crops up quite a bit in the scriptures. In the Psalms, you have these phrases, that God is the God above all gods. He's the Lord above all gods. And that doesn't mean that God is at the top of a pile of gods who really exist. That means that God is the one true God. He's above all of these other so-called gods who aren't really gods anyway. They're just false gods and idols. That's what that means when you hear that kind of phrase. It's not a statement of polytheism with God at the top. It's a statement that Yahweh alone is the one true God with power. These other gods, people believe they exist, but they don't really. And God is sovereign over all of it. That's what Jethro is confessing. He's confessing that God is the one true God over all. And this is spectacularly important, given that Jethro has been a priest of a pagan religion. He's been a priest in Midian, and they didn't follow Yahweh. They didn't follow the God of the Bible. They followed other gods, other deities, so-called deities. And now Jethro is coming and he's worshipping God and naming Yahweh as the one true God. And then look at the next thing that he does. Might seem strange to us, but very significant biblically, he offers a sacrifice. Jethro comes and he offers a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. Now, you know what the burnt offering signifies in Israel? It's an atonement offering. The burnt offering is what you offer when you confess sin and you repent of your sin and you receive God's mercy and his forgiveness and his grace into your life. Isn't that great? This is what Jethro is doing. He's going through a process of repentance. He's confessing his own sin before the one true God and he's receiving God's grace into his life. This is fantastic. Moses is, is sitting there watching while his father-in-law has his heart turned towards God and offers his life to Yahweh. And then the final thing that happens is that they have a meal together. But this meal is significant. It's not just a family reunion between Jethro and Moses and the family. You also see there that the elders of Israel are present. That means what's happening at this point is that Jethro is being assimilated into the community of Israel. He's being incorporated. He's not an Israelite, but he's being incorporated into the people of God. And from this moment onwards, Jethro becomes, for all intents and purposes, an Israelite. He journeys with the community of God's people towards Canaan, as well as Moses' wife, Zipporah, and his two boys. That family now becomes part of the people of God. They're brought right in, they're incorporated, and they follow the journey from this point onwards. This is unbelievable. I mean, Jethro was a priest. Jethro was a pastor of a pagan religion, leading people to worship other gods, facilitating worship services and who knows what kind of rituals to pagan gods, and now he has renounced that, he's rejected that, and he's turned his life towards Yahweh. You know what this is? It's a story of conversion. And this is significant because what you're looking at in this passage is the first conversion story in the Bible. It's the very first time that you have recounted the story of a person from outside of Israel, outside Abraham's family, who becomes a follower of God, becomes part of the Hebrew people, and journeys on with them. It may not be the first time that someone has done that. There are hints earlier in the biblical story that people have possibly become part of Israel, but this is the first time that we have a conversion story recounted in any detail at all. First conversion story. It's an important moment in the Bible. And it taps into something taps into a theme that's going to get louder and louder and louder, like a, like a drum through the Old Testament. The theme 
of God's heart for the nations. You see it here so early in the biblical story, and it's going to develop and develop and develop. What you're seeing in Jethro's conversion is the heart of God. You're seeing that God is a God who desires all people to come and worship him. Just think how different this is to the story of the Amalekites that we looked at earlier, the Amalekites that come to attack Israel. And here's another person from another foreign people group coming, but he's not coming to attack. He's coming because he's, he's heard about Yahweh and he wants to know more. And eventually that ends with him worshiping Yahweh. This is what God wants. That's God's heart for the nations. That's God's heart for all people, that they would come and worship him. God is focused on a particular people in the book of Exodus. Yes, he's working with Israel. He's journeying with Israel. It's very specific. But God's always got his eye on the bigger picture. So vital to reading Exodus. The story of Israel is about more than Israel. The story of Moses is about more than Moses. God's got a huge redemptive plan, and it's to save and draw all people to himself. One writer put it this way, paraphrasing John 3.16. He said, For God so loved the world that he chose Abraham in the beginning. Before Jesus, God so loved the world that he chose Abraham and through him Israel and through Israel God's intention was his blessing would flow out to all nations. God's always got his eye on the nations. And his desire is that people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation would come to do exactly what Jethro does here. Say, now I know that the Lord is greater than any other God. Jethro represents the fulfillment, partial fulfillment, of God's promises to Abraham. That through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We're starting to see it now with Jethro. And he points us forward toward a lot more of that to come. Points us forward, of course, ultimately to Jesus the one in whom this climactic plan to reach the nations comes to its fulfillment. Through Christ, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, God opens the floodgates so that all people everywhere are welcome, are invited now to experience the reconciliation that's made possible through the death of Jesus. Reconciliation with God. We can be reconciled as a community to God and to one another through Christ. And now God is outworking that plan and drawing people from all over the world, every tribe, every tongue, every nation to himself. He's doing this today. God is still drawing Jethro's to himself today. And I think one of the biggest problems in the church is that we just don't even believe that he's really doing that. I mean, we might look at scripture and think in theory that's happening, but then we look at 21st century thoroughly secularized New Zealand, and to be honest, we're a bit cynical of whether that stuff really happens today. Whether people's hearts really change, because people are so hardened, people are so anti, people are so past it in terms of Christianity today. And isn't that exactly what the enemy would want us to believe? That God isn't really doing this work of changing people's lives anymore, so that we become complacent and cynical and hopeless and we give up. And yet God's still at work. He's still drawing Jethro's to himself. He's still turning around lives, often over a long period of time, often through a whole lot of prayer, and often in ways that may not even be visible to us. But God's at work. He's turning lives around. He's transforming people's lives, and he's inviting us to be part of it. He's inviting those of us that have had our lives changed, who have done what Jethro did, who have confessed God to be the only true God. He's now enlisting us in his mission of reaching the nations. And to do that at a very ordinary, very everyday, interpersonal level, in the relationships that we have with people who don't know Christ. That's the calling on our lives, to participate in this, to be actively 
passionately involved in what God is doing in reaching the lives of people who don't know him. Because the spirit of God is at work and the harvest is plentiful, the Bible tells us, but the workers are few. So we've got to get out into the harvest and pray that God would enlist more workers alongside us in his harvest. So with that in mind, I want to come back again to the story of Jethro and I want to tell it again. And as we go, I want to look at three factors that were important in Jethro coming to faith in God and draw some connections to our lives and how we can get on board with what God's doing here. First one is right at the beginning of the chapter. Look at the first thing that happens to Jethro in verse 1. What is it? Now Jethro heard of everything that God had done. The first thing that happens is that Jethro hears, even before Moses comes along. Before the conversation with Moses, Jethro had already heard about what God had done. He'd heard the reports. It was a major thing that happened, the liberation of an entire nation. And all of this reached the regions around Egypt, and it got to Jethro and Moses' family. And God had planted a seed there, warmed Jethro's heart up, so by the time he had this conversation with Moses, he was ready. He was open to hearing. But I think, to be honest, today, the situation in many of our contexts is, is the opposite that what people have heard about God is pretty negative. People's perceptions of the church generally are pretty negative. People's perceptions of Christians are pretty negative because it's all based on caricatures that they've heard through the media, through social media, through friends or whatever. It's just this sort of conglomerate of stuff that's often way, way, way off base. And people have heard other things, other worldviews, other stories that they find more convincing, more compelling, and they've used those to make sense of their life. But it's so vital as Christians that we take the time to hear what people have heard. That we take the time to try and discover the spiritual journeys of other people and discover what they've already heard about Christianity because that gives us a starting point. Before we go charging in with our message, we've got a message, we've got the truth, we've got the good news. But before we go riding in with that, take a minute to just draw out the spiritual journeys of the people around you. And ask some questions that might tap into, what, what have you already heard? What, what, what is your perception of what Christians believe? And what other spiritual stories, what other worldviews have you heard? You might, some of you remember that a few months ago we had a group of Muslims come along to the church on a Sunday. That was interesting. And the precursor to that was that a few of us caught up with them, this group of Muslims, uh, for a casual conversation in a cafe. Uh, there was a Muslim cleric coming over from Australia who was keen to have some interfaith conversation with a Christian. And so uh, someone at mutual contact in our church contacted me and said, do you want to sit down with this guy and have a talk about Christianity, about Islam? So I thought, good opportunity. And I, I genuinely went into that conversation to learn, uh, not to be antagonistic, not to fire a whole lot of uh, Bible verses at them, but to try and learn, to try and understand a little bit more. And so I asked some questions about how they understood Islam, how the Islam that they represent is different from ISIS and other groups that they try and distance themselves from. And I asked these kinds of questions. I asked them at one stage what their perception is of Christians, which I think is a good question to ask people. What, what, what do you think about Christians? What experience have you had with, Christ, with the church? What, what comes to your mind? And, and they were very polite. And you sense maybe there was some things they didn't say but they were very polite and very gracious. And one of them, a young woman, said, talked about some school friends that she'd had who were Christians, who were really nice to her, really encouraging towards her, who had invited her along to some church event at some stage, and that was a positive experience for her, and she talked about it. 
And it provided a stepping stone for us to be able to talk about different types of Christians, different types of churches, and was kind of a bridge to some further conversation. I think it's a real sign of respect to people we're talking to if we give them the dignity of listening. If we just stop long enough and ask a couple of questions about their own spiritual journey and take time to genuinely listen. Because if we want them to listen to us, don't we have to reciprocate that? You think of the Jethro's in your life. Now, I use that word to talk about people that you know who are not followers of Jesus. Your family members, your friends, your colleagues, your workmates, your neighbors, people who don't know Jesus. Is it possible for you in conversations with people that you know and have a bit of a relationship with to ask a question here or there that might tap into what they already believe, that might tap into the deep values that they hold? They may not even have thought of it. They may struggle to articulate their worldview themselves. In fact, what you're doing might be helpful for them in clarifying their own journey, thinking about their own spirituality. And who knows, that may just open the door to more conversation. See if you can ask a question that helps you to discover the stories of people around you. Second thing that happens to Jethro is something that Moses does. Down in verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians and so on. I love the way that Moses goes about this. He doesn't just give Jethro a download of information about God. Uh, He doesn't just give him some abstract ideas. You know, God loves you, Jethro, and in 1,300 years, Jesus is going to come and die for your sins on a cross. He doesn't go into all that. What does he do? He simply tells him the story. He tells them, well, this is what happened, man. I was standing in front of Pharaoh and we're having this conversation and next thing these plagues are happening. You can just imagine Moses just talks him through the whole thing. The Red Sea crossing, how amazing that must have been. As well as, you get the hint here, he told Jethro about some hard times that God had rescued them from. Wasn't afraid to look a little bit broken and weak in front of Jethro at times. But how God had been faithful through their whole journey. And it's this beautiful composite of Moses' story and God's story being woven together into a salvation story that Jethro hears and then responds to. Ultimately, people can't know the truth unless we speak the truth. And there comes a time we've got to be prepared to share our story. We've got to be prepared to share God's story with others. So let me just ask you a couple of questions. If right now someone said to you, can you share your faith story with me in just a couple of minutes? What would you say? Suddenly you're on the spot, got to share your testimony. You think of the people that got baptized last week succinct telling of their faith story, what led them to faith in Christ and the difference it's made in their lives. If someone put you on the spot right now and asked you to do that, what would you come out with? Because if you haven't thought about it beforehand, you're going to take off onto some wild rabbit trail. You'll be talking about your great auntie who did this and there's some wedding you went to over here and someone gave you a bracelet and next thing. And you're in the tall grass then and you suddenly wake up and realize, hang on, I'm a million miles away from what I'm supposed to be talking about was my faith journey. That's right. And then conversation's over. Got to go. Sorry. Gone. Moments go- Those moments are so rare anyway, you've got to be ready. 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared. You just don't know when you might fall into a conversation randomly with someone and you've got an opportunity to say a snippet about your story. Be ready for it. Rehearse your own faith journey so that you can succinctly tell, because this is the most powerful form of witness we have. People can argue against proofs and arguments and all philosophical things. They can't argue with your story. Your story is your story of what God has done in your life. It's powerful. Be ready to share it. Pray for opportunities to share it. Here's the second question. If someone asks you right now, what what is the story of the Bible? 
what is this? What's Christianity all about? Could you articulate that in a couple of minutes? If you had just two minutes to tell the whole story of the Bible from beginning to end, what would you leave in? What would you leave out? Would you leave in the Ten Commandments? Maybe. Would you put in the story about Elisha and the bears? Probably not. Not in the two-minute version anyway. <laughs> what would you say? If you, again, if you're not thinking about this stuff, man, the opportunity's there and it's gone and you're done. Think, you know, this is why we're running long story short. What a great coincidence. We're running this course. This is exactly what it will do for you, is talk you through the biblical story so you know it and understand it and can share it. Sometimes you just get an opportunity to share part of the story. I caught up last week with a, a guy that I know from school. I told you about him a little while ago. He's the hip-hop Buddhist, the hip-hop rapping Buddhist. And he's an interesting character. He's a very spiritual guy. At the heart of it for him is Buddhism, but then wrapped around that, there's all kinds of other stuff. And he's one of these people who everything's agreeable, doesn't, never disagree, he just kind of, whatever you say, he just folds it into his own melting pot of spirituality. So it's quite hard to sort of ever, ever challenge, because it's all, yeah, great, yep, I'll take that on board, and it's a big smorgasbord of religion. Uh, and so I asked him, as we talked, I just asked him, uh, tell me about your spiritual journey. And he told me all, you know, just everything about what he's going through and the highs and the lows, and including experiences of Christianity and so on, and, uh, and on and on it went. And it was good to hear. And as he was talking, what I was doing was trying to listen for connection points, trying to listen for points that might intersect with the biblical story or might intersect with my own story that may enable the conversation to segue towards the gospel somehow, just listening. And I found one of those connection points in an unlikely place. He was sharing with me this random dream that he'd had, this weird spiritual dream, and he said, in this dream, I felt the pain of the whole world upon me, and yet I felt secure in the midst of it. Now, that would be easy just to write that off. That's weird. Pass that one by. Let me tell you about Jesus. You know. But I was trying to listen for connection points. And as he'd finished that particular bit of his spiel, I said, you know, as you, were, as you were sharing that, as you were talking about your dream, as you're talking about your vision, I thought, you know, there's some similarities there with what Jesus did on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus did carry the world's pain. He actually, the, the pain of the world, the, the, the struggle of the world, as Christians, we would say the sin of the world, all converged upon Jesus on the cross. And he did carry it. And because of that, we can be forgiven, and therefore we can be secure in our relationship with God. But that comes through receiving God's forgiveness. So I, I mean, I had bits and pieces of opportunities, but it wasn't a coherent opportunity to present the biblical story point to point to point to point in a logical sequence. I just had to find connection points and then share a bit. But I was able to share that, which is the heart of the story, right? The cross. I was able to share about what Jesus had done for him on the cross. And I think that it might have connected more deeply with him because it resonated with an experience that he had had. So I was respecting his story and I was respecting him as a person and trying to connect Jesus and the biblical story to his life and his experience. I still don't know exactly what he thought of all that, but it was one way in which I was able to angle the conversation towards Jesus, picking up on something that he had shared. Listen for those moments. I'm not talking about being deceitful in conversation. I'm not talking about being manipulative. I'm talking, again, about listening and seeing what you can do to build bridges. 
common ground, points of intersection, opportunities to share something about your own story or the biblical story, but all this is premised on our ability to know our story well and share it, and know the biblical story well and be able to share it or parts of it as the opportunities come, because they'll come quickly and they'll pass just as quickly, and we need to be ready. Final thing that happens to Jethro, and of course this is the best part, Jethro's response. Jethro rejoiced on the basis of all of this. He praised the Lord, he offered the sacrifice, he received God's forgiveness. And that's what we'd all love to happen, isn't it? That you share your story with someone, you share God's story, and they turn around and say, now I know, my eyes have been opened. Now I know that the Lord is the one true God, and they offer a burnt sacrifice right there in front of you. That's, I mean, how many people have had that experience? Maybe some of you. Health and safety issues around that, for starters. But this is what we long for, is for people to come to faith and to know Jesus. But those times, if we're honest, are few and far between. This is where we've got to be reminded that what happened to Jethro was the work of God's Spirit in his heart. That it's God who opens the heart. It's not us. You will feel unbelievably guilty about this message if you think, if you go out there thinking that it's your personal responsibility to drag and cajole somebody else across the line of faith, to, to drag your work colleague kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. A, it's not going to happen, and B, it's not your responsibility. It is God who opens the hearts of men and women and children to receive the truth. It's God who plants the seeds of faith and gives people the strength to respond. It's God who melts the hearts. It's God who changes lives. It's the sovereign work of the Spirit of God. And that should just lead us to relax a little bit, shouldn't it? Don't get all stressed out. Don't get all highly strung by this. Enjoy the experience of being used by God in a work that was going on long before you were around and a work that's going to continue long after you've gone, the work of reconciling the world to God through Christ. We get to be a part of it for a moment in time. But it's only a moment, and we're just workers in the harvest field. He's the Lord of the harvest. We must keep that in mind. Otherwise, you'll, you'll bear a burden that was never yours to bear. A couple of months ago, I had another opportunity through a friend in our church, Billy, to share, uh, have a spiritual conversation with an elderly couple. And the husband has got terminal brain cancer and he's only got a few months to live. This is not a couple in our church, they're not Christians at all. But Billy's been talking to them and he said to me, oh, I, I, I mentioned to this couple that the next time I go around and talk to them, would it be okay if I brought my pastor? He said all this before he talked to me, of course. And I said, okay, let's <laughs> see how this goes. And I thought they probably just said yes to be polite. And it was even made more awkward because I showed up and the only person there initially were me and the wife. That was a little bit weird. The husband was asleep and Billy hadn't turned up yet. So we had this awkward conversation in the lounge. But then finally Billy did show up and the husband woke up. And so we were able to sit down in the lounge and actually have a conversation. And it was, it was good. I mean, between me and Billy, we bounced back and forth and we shared some things about our faith shared a bit of our stories, answered some of their questions as best we could, asked them a little bit about their experiences. And uh, you, it became pretty apparent that she was quite open to faith, quite open to Christ, and she was searching. You know, you can see that in someone's heart, that she was open. She was desiring to move forward. Uh, he was less so. Uh, he was a little bit aloof. He was polite, but just not quite as open. So we gave her a Bible, highlighted some verses, 
uh, and just encouraged her to keep pursuing that relationship with Christ and begin a conversation with God. Well, the next week, she emailed me and said, thanks very much for the conversation we had. We'd like to come and see you again, this time without Billy. No offense, Billy. But <laughs> Billy was great in that conversation. But they, so they came this time to the, to the church office, and I sat down with them again, and it very quickly became apparent that while she was still quite open to spiritual things, he had become more closed, uh, which was interesting because he's the one with terminal brain cancer. But he had become quite closed to the point of being pretty dismissive, didn't want to know anything about Christian faith, and was actually quite dismissive of her continuing the spiritual journey. So I was trying to walk a delicate line there, encouraging in her faith, but not wanting to get in the way or cause friction. I wanted to be respectful, and I just tried to keep encouraging her to question and to ask and to seek and to read Scripture and talk with God, uh, while at the same time being as gracious and respectful as I could towards him. And uh, they were polite, and I prayed for them at the end, and they left, and I haven't seen them since. And in some ways, I came away from that conversation a little bit discouraged because I felt like, man, it's, I feel in some ways like we're taking a step backwards here. But I also come away strongly reminded that it is God's work to change hearts. And it's not mine. I tried to take the opportunity that was given to me. I tried to say imperfectly as much as I could say and share, but it's the work of God in people's hearts. And it's their freedom and responsibility to choose as well. And God's a respecter of human freedom in that regard, I believe. So I can't mess with that. I can't bring people to faith. I can share what I can share with them just as you can. And the one thing we can do is pray, right? That's the one thing that we can do is pray. And we must pray specifically and earnestly for people we know, friends, family, colleagues, neighbors who don't know Jesus. Are you praying for them by name every day? Because when you start praying for them, things are going to happen. One is that you're going to start to get a heart for them. You are going to start to be burdened for them in a good way, and you'll pray more fervently then because God's going to lay on your heart a desire for them to be saved. The second thing that will happen is you're going to have a raised awareness. As you're traveling through your day, your radar is going to be up, and you'll be looking and listening and aware of opportunities to say something, to pray specifically in a given moment, to share a little bit of your story, you just be more aware. And you may be aware of opportunities that were there you've never even realized were there. Or through your prayers, may God give you opportunities that weren't there before. Your, your, your awareness may in fact lead to greater opportunities. So I encourage you to pray by name to lift the people you know who don't know Christ to him and pray that God would do a work in their heart. There's no heart that he can't change. There's no life that he can't turn around. Even if the person seems to you to be a million miles from God, you don't know what's going on in their heart. You've got no idea, perhaps, of their spiritual journey at this point, but you can ask God to work and believe that the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is at work in their heart, drawing, calling, wooing people to himself. That's the work that God is doing. So this story of Jethro, it, this picture of Jethro there, worshipping God, giving him praise, you know, it reminds me of that final scene in the Bible, in Revelation. You have that community of people, the multitude of people, from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, standing around the throne of God, giving him praise, giving him worship, saying salvation belongs to the Lord, worthy is the Lord and to the Lamb. And in that community of people, there'll be Jethro. He'll be there as the first, perhaps the first, non-Israelite ever converted. He's going to be among that people. There'll be people down through history from every people group and tribe and tongue and nation under heaven, 
including many from New Zealand and the multitude of ethnicities within New Zealand. There may be people that we know, Lord willing, perhaps some people even that we are journeying with at the moment and praying for. We pray, God willing, that they'll be part of that multitude and keeping that picture in front of you of the great, the great worship scene in heaven and the renewed heaven and earth on that day should give us a bit of passion in the present to reach out in faith and to have the faith that even in our day and even in a country that seems as hardened to the gospel as New Zealand does, God is still calling Jethro to himself. God is still at work in the lives of Jethro's all around us. We need the faith to believe that. We need the faith sometimes to see that and we need the courage to respond to it by having conversations with people, asking really good questions that tap into people's deep values and spiritual stories and worldviews, leaning into every opportunity that we have appropriately, sensitively, but courageously, leaning into every opportunity we have to say a word, to be a witness, share a bit of our story, share a bit of God's story, and pray earnestly that God would do for people that we know what he did in the life of Jethro. Bring them to a point where they may say, now I know that God is greater and is the only God truly worthy of worship. May God change the lives of many, many Jethros in our day and in our nation by the power of his spirit. Amen. Let's pray. So God, now we draw to mind the names of people, the faces of people we know who right now don't know you. And we don't know the hearts of people, Lord, but the ones that we're aware of. We think of our family members now, God. Extended family. People living on either side of us, on our street. Parents of our kids' friends. Workmates. People at the gym, on sports teams. God, all around us. And I pray, Jesus, that you would give us the ability to see them as you saw them. Jesus, when you walked this earth, you didn't just see people around you as men and women and children. You saw them as lost sheep without a shepherd. So give us the eyes to see those around us as lost sheep without a shepherd. Break our hearts for them, God. Break our hearts for the lost. You are a God who loves lost people and loves enabling lost people to be found in you and raising spiritually dead people to life. Give us the faith to believe that can happen. Give us the courage, Lord Jesus, to sow the seeds that we can sow. God, we know that the journey, the spiritual journey of people is very long and often far more than our bit of it. We just pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be faithful, to plant a seed, to sow a seed, to say a word, to live a life that honors you, to do what we can do, and to trust you, God, with the rest to trust you, God, that it's your work in people's hearts. Thank you that we can leave the results to you. Thank you that we can leave the outcome of all of this to you. But give us courage, Lord Jesus, to do what we can do and make us people of prayer who earnestly lift up others to you in faith, asking you to work powerfully in their lives. We pray you would transform the lives of people around us. Draw them to yourself. Awaken them to faith, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit 
www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.